0: I just want you to know what Pastor Joe and I'll do for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> I can't wait for second service. My kids will be in the second service. Oh, they're going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> so, you know, I appreciate that, Pastor Joe, sharing with us what of the sound of springs. I think the sound of spring for me was when my calendar said, file taxes tomorrow. So uh, anyway, well, good morning, church. Welcome. Those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you as well. Thank you for being with us this morning. Let's give uh, our online folks a welcome with applause. I just wanted everybody to be able to hear the applause because the Sunday after Easter are the people who really love Jesus that come to church. So, or join us online. You love Jesus too. So thank you for that. A um, couple of um, things that I want to share with you as we begin. First of all, we're getting ready to start a three-week series, Top 10 Ways Not to Save the World. <clears> That's <throat> actually a longer title, but I want to get done before uh, the uh, time is out, so I'm just going to give that part of the title. Uh, following, this is only three weeks. Following that series, we have a, uh, a standalone Sunday. Pastor Chris Goble will be with us uh, and will be our preacher um he is uh, we have worked with pastor Chris uh, a great deal with some of our outreach uh, partnerships with Mission Hills and he's on staff over there and he's going to come over and share with us today or that day uh that's uh, May 15th uh, our men brotherhood will have be at their brotherhood retreat if you are involved or active in our brotherhood like you come to a breakfast or if you've ever come to a breakfast and would you stand could you stand, please, if you've been to it? So I want you to look around to these fellows. Now, I'm looking at men. But don't sit down. How many of you women have come to Brotherhood breakfasts? Please, you stand. How many women? See, there you go. Now, I just want you to know, let's give them a round of applause. Everybody can sit down but Gary. <laughs> and uh, uh, on that weekend, the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th, at Estes Park, we have our Brotherhood retreat. They couldn't afford a good speaker, so they asked me to come speak. And, uh, men, if you haven't signed up for it yet, you, we really encourage you to do it. I wanted Gary to stand, it. Can you stand up one more time and turn around? First of all, look how nice that shirt is. I love that shirt. I have a shirt almost like that. I might wear it. Uh, go talk to him, pastor Joe, myself, or any of the other men that you saw standing Men, we'd love to have you at this retreat. We have room for about 50 that is filling up. We want you to come. If the uh, cost is a little too much, we have some scholarship information and would encourage you to do that. Uh, May 11th, we start our marriage, uh, uh, fight your way to a better marriage. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Currently married or in a relationship. Very good. How many of you fight? Y'all are liars. (laughs) Some of you need to be raising your hand. Fight your way to a better marriage. So we're going to be looking at ways to fight well. Uh, Sean and I will be leading that. I hope that you'll sign up for that. You can find more about that online as well. Uh, After uh, we get back from the Brotherhood Retreat, we are getting ready for Vacation Bible School. And uh, we're going to be looking at the stories of Joseph. So we'll be doing that for four weeks. And then after the Vacation Bible School celebration, we're going to be starting our summer sermon series called The Messiah. Now, I know you may have vacations scheduled and those sorts of things. I really encourage you to try to make as many of those as you can. It's a six-week series. I occasionally have people ask me, can you, can you talk a little bit more about how Jesus can be found in the Old Testament? And so for six weeks, we're going to be looking at the Old... some of, Not all of them, because Jesus is all through the Old Testament. The, the Messiah is all through the Old Testament. But we're going to be looking at a, a six of those passages where we see the clearest uh, 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 proclamation of the coming of Jesus Christ. The the scriptures, all 66 books, Old and New Testament, are God's gift to us, the authority in which we know the word of God, the living word, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you'll uh, be uh, making plans to be in church. If you're out on vacation or or out of town during those summer weeks, we, this, we have online. So there's absolutely no excuse for you. But I really, really want to encourage you to be a part of that series uh, this coming summer uh, as we look at the Messiah. That's why we're here. If you have your uh, Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, a little explanation of how we came to this series is in your study notes. You can get to the study notes either by the QR code. We have some paper copies at the Welcome Center. You're f- feel free to pick those up as well. This really was birthed over a couple of coffee and uh, two sausages, two eggs, and two pancakes at the Village Inn. And uh, so um, Pastor Joe had recently read a book uh, entitled Top Ten Ways Not to Save the World, uh, I read it. it. It's a it's a great book to think about how we are connected to God's work. I encourage you. We're not trying to sell it to you, but I, if, you, if you're able to pick a copy up, uh, we're only going to be looking at a couple of those uh, points. Hosanna uh, uh, Wong is the author. She's uh, a Christian author, uh, has worked in urban ministry, young Christian author, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, bits of advice uh, and uh, insights. Um, If you don't want to pick up the book, that's fine. Uh, Be attentive to the next three weeks. I'll be preaching this week and next week, and then Pastor Joe will be finishing this series out. Hope that you'll pay attention to this as we are in this Easter season. By the way, Easter is a season, not just a day. It's 50 days. And uh, so the way I figured, if if you abstain from chocolate for the 40 days of Lent, you can eat all the chocolate you want for 50 days of Easter. I don't know if that's how it works or not, but anyway. Uh so um Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 if you've got your bibles or your tablets or your phones uh, here as we read these uh, verses verses 4 through 7 there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He reads the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. All right, let's set the tone here. So here we are, okay? You're at church today on this day. People fighting in North Africa, places like Egypt and Arabia, Iran is trying to secure control over the Middle East and regain their influence, and then a war started in the Ukraine when the Russians decided to expand their empire yet again. Now, you may think that I'm describing our present reality, but what I have just described to you is the present reality of the Apostle Paul when he was writing this book to the church at Ephesus. The book we know as Ephesians. Now, 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 Granted, the the countries had different names. Iran wasn't called Iran then; it was called Persia. Ukraine was called quote the borderlands, and the people invading at that time were called the Roxolani people, who lived around the area of the Black Sea, which, of course, as you know today, is Russia. And here we are today. Now, now, I'm actually talking about today. Are you ready? Violence against Christians in Egypt over the past couple of weeks. Saudi Arabia fighting with Yemen. Yes, this is a war that started seven years ago between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Seven years ago. Do you remember hearing any recent news stories about it? As a matter of fact, the news cycle has dropped it entirely, haven't they? Iran is pushing for expansion of control over the Persian Gulf. And of course, we all know Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, the reason I share this with you is is because one of the blessings, or curses, I guess, of knowing history is seeing that we've been here before. Now, that doesn't diminish the seriousness of what we're going through right now, but as one commentator recently said in an interview that I heard, the best thing that we can hope for when electing new politicians is that they won't take us into another needless war. They can mess up everything else, but as long as they don't start another war, we can count that political tenure a pretty good political tenure. But here we are, you and me, followers of Jesus Christ, in a world that is rift with violence and evil and war, and has been so since Paul sat down and put pen to paper, well, probably quill to papyri, but that's another sermon. And the same thing is going on. How have Christians understood and responded to evil in the world? How did our ancient brothers and sisters to whom Paul was writing in the New Testament deal with the issues that were plaguing their world? And how can they teach us how we ought to engage in our world? How do we respond as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, let me just say this. We see suffering in our own lives every day with the folks around us, maybe even in our own experiences. I know that whenever I go through a drive-thru, I wonder how the guy taking my order affords to pay rent. The couple down the street who my family sees and we know just from how they engage with one another that their marriage must be falling apart. The teenager who lives on the next block over, who has become sullen, depressed. Their parents say that their teen sleeps late and has stopped paying attention to their personal grooming. The widow, who never leaves her home now, and for whom every piece of mail that she gets that looks like a bill, she thinks is a bill, and she sends money to them. And now she has found herself over her head in debts. These are just some of the things that I see every day. Now, these aren't things that I just made up, things that are probable, things that I'm suggesting to you. These situations that I just listed are actual situations in my experience of the people in my life who who live next door to me, who live down the street from me, with whom I engage in multiple times throughout the week. And I suspect that you probably do too. You could even be one of the folks who's engaged in that kind of evil and struggle and brokenness right now. So what do we do? Well, before we begin this series, Top Ten Ways Not to Save the World, let, let, let me begin with this. It's my first point, but it's really sort of the point that will preface all of the points throughout the entirety of this series, and it's this question. Save the world? You can't even save yourself. How are you supposed to save the world? So with that question in mind, with that statement in mind, let's think a little bit about what we see and what we may do and the folks that we know, what they may do in trying to save the world. Now, if you're a progressive, liberal church or a progressive, liberal Christian, you protest. A lot. Typically while holding a caramel ribbon crunch cream frappuccino from Starbucks. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, they are pretty good, just kind of expensive. If you're a conservative evangelical Christian or a conservative evangelical church, you what? Pray. Or at least you say you pray. Or you offer one of those quick one-liner prayers, you know. You see Bob coming down the street and you say, Man, I told Bob I'd pray for him. Lord, I lift up Bob to you. Hey, Bob, I've been praying for you. We've all done that time or two in our life. Are you praying for Ukraine? Oh, yeah. Yes, Lord, please be with the Ukrainians. And that's the extent of it. Though some of us may fast one meal or... As my children say, can we just fast vegetables? (laughs) Some of us donate money. And that's not a bad thing either. There are people who need the resources that we have a little extra. Now listen, I know that I was probably going to annoy somebody when I gave those three approaches to how we deal with evil. We protest, we pray, we donate money. None of those things are bad. All right, let me just say that. Those are all fine things. Sometimes we need to protest. We need to pray all the time. And we need to donate money as we are able as often as we can. There's even biblical support for all of those methods. You might not agree with all of the biblical support. But I could sit down and give you some biblical support for each of those approaches. But it would do well for us to remember... That saving the world, are you ready, has already happened. We just talked about it in depth last week. We didn't have anything to do with it. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order the world might be saved through him. The world will be saved through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come to save the world. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the ways that you and I participate, or at least benefit, in God's plan to bring salvation to the world. Now, I've already shared with you, Pastor Joe's uh, sharing with me the book, top, or The uh, Top Ways to Not Save the World, written by Hosanna Wong, a Christian author working in urban ministry in San Francisco. The the actual title of a book, How Not to Save the World, the subtitle of that book is The Truth About Revealing God's Love to the People Right Next to You. A lot of us find ourselves in situations where we become overwhelmed. How can I be a part of bringing peace to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and ending the death of the folks in Arabia and Yemen? How can I give comfort to Christians in Egypt? How can I help the Ukrainians as they wage war against their invaders? Save the world around us. Now, I'm seriously suggesting this to you, that that might be the best place to start. The problem is, is that many of us look at the world around us And we have the intentions of saving the world that is around us, saving the people who are in our lives, and the methods that we use just make all of us miserable. And they do no good whatsoever. So here's a hint as we enter into this series. Every suggestion that Pastor Joe and I are going to give you, well, well, every suggestion that Hosanna Wong gives us, really helps us not to save the world they are ways that we often use to try to live life that actually bring us defeat so my suggestion to you is as you hear these do the exact opposite and you might begin to see the success that God is bringing to us so my second point and really the first method not to save the world. Is always fly solo. All right? Always fly solo. Now I know, it's as American as hamburgers and apple pie. As a matter of fact, sociologists call this propensity in us who are in North America specifically rugged individualism. It has framed our understanding of American democracy. How many of us have said, I have God-given rights? I have God-given rights. Which, by the way, I agree with. I'm not opposed to that. But here's the thing. So often, since we're sinful people, because our flesh corrupts us, because we are more prone to listen to Satan than we are to Christ, our flesh blurs our desires with our rights. I know you're probably not keeping track, but next week will be one year since we have started back with in-person worship. The preceding year was probably one of, if not the hardest year of my ministry. And I would suggest that it was probably your hardest year too. I can tell you it was the hardest year for our staff and for the leadership of this congregation, for all of us. We were in the middle of a global pandemic. We were dealing with fear, isolation, economic uncertainty, political rivalry that had provoked violence on both ends of the political spectrum. We'd make a decision as a church after wrestling and conflict even among our leadership teams sometimes voices would get raised between the senior pastor and the president but at the end of the day we'd finally come to a conclusion and i would receive a phone call or our president would receive a phone call oftentimes multiple phone calls on the same day with one person saying that we hadn't done enough and a few minutes later the next phone call saying we had done too much everyone on our leadership team, everyone on our staff knew that no matter what decisions we made, pretty much everybody was going to be angry at us. Some folks even issued their ultimatums. They said to us, it's my way or it's the highway. And when it wasn't their way, they left. It was hard. But one thing was true at the end of the day. No one made a decision alone every decision that was made involved every member of our leadership and ministry teams we didn't even agree with ourselves half the time but we were trying to do the best that we could do but some people just said if you don't do what i want i'm out of here so let me just say parenthetically my wife went ahead and pulled the suitcases out this morning because she figured this sermon would get me in trouble Those of you who did disagree, and you're still here, thank you. Thank you for honoring our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. We tried the best we could. None of us woke up and said, let's see who we can make angry today. And I would suggest that the folks, many of them, not all of you, but many of them were suffering from this idea they were flying solo. They thought that what they wanted was the right thing and we're unable to think about what anyone else might say or do or how it might impact anyone else. I want what I want, and everybody else needs to get on board with what I want. That's a hard thing to do, and every single one of you in this room have dealt with that in other situations in your life, in your family, at your place of work, in your neighborhood, where someone has said, you need to like what I like, And if you don't like what I like, then you're the one that's wrong. It's a hard place to be. That's not how relationships are strengthened. That's not how organizations, whether it be your employer, whether it be your family, whether it be your neighborhood, whether it be your church, that's not how we grow stronger. That's not how we build up one another. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's writing to a church that is diverse, a lot like our church. Now, Ephesus is a pretty cool city, actually. It's located in present-day Turkey. It's a thriving city at the time, Paul is writing. It has a strong economy. There's a real sense of religious tolerance there. It was one of the cities. It was called a free city because even though it was a part of the Roman Empire, it really enjoyed great freedom under that Roman rule to do what it wanted to do. But Paul reminds the Ephesians that the same way as God started the plan of salvation with the people, the children of Abraham, the Jewish people, Israel, so too does God still have a people, the church of Jesus Christ. For Paul, as he dealt with the Ephesians, their baptism in Christ is what united them as one people. And as a people, you and I, we are called to unity. We're not called to always agree. We're not even always called to like each other. But we are called to unity. Not because either of us deserve what we want to give to the other, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for each of us. Because of what Jesus Christ has placed within each of us. Probably one of the most important verses in the New Testament. Maybe the second best known. John 3.16 is probably the best known. I prayerfully hope that verse 4 rivals your awareness. As Paul says, there is one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all. Who's over all? Am I over all? Are you over all? No, God is over all and through all and in all. Now, I'm going to say it and you repeat after me. God And Father of all who is over all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There was a recent article in the Denver Post that suggested that people are beginning to leave Denver at a higher rate than ever before. Now, we're still getting more people into the Denver metro area than are leaving the metro area, but we are seeing the highest number of people leave the metro area than we have seen in recent history. The number one reason is, what do you guess? Cost of living. Cost of living housing specifically. Housing is the number one reason people are leaving the Denver area. The second biggest reason people are leaving, you won't guess, you won't guess this in a million years. You want to take some ch- shots at it? No? No? You don't want to be wrong in front of everybody, do you? The number two reason is loneliness. Now, that doesn't surprise me because when we were doing the strategic plan, Jerry McClellan, our president, who was our president during that time, you remember these conversations. We were talking about that sense of loneliness that's pervasive in our community. We already knew it, but no one was saying it. And the reason I think we already knew it is is because the Holy Spirit was at work in helping us understand and prepare for what God was calling us into the future. Loneliness, the second biggest reason people are leaving. And let me state this clearly. I think that the enemy, Satan, the powers of darkness, want us to do life alone. And you know why? Why? Satan wants us to do life alone because we're easier to conquer when we're alone. And yet, it's hard to make friends sometimes, isn't it? When your neighbors are in and a few months later, they're gone. In the time that I've been with you, some of you have shared with me that you've been here 25, 30 years. You know each other. And you said to me that the reasons you call this place your home is because you were going through a difficult time in your life, and there were what? Other folks who supported you. At the end of the day, that was the most important reason you called this place home. I I frankly have really never understood why people look at their faith as just me and Jesus. Jesus. Maybe it's because of how I was raised, or the church I was raised in, or my parents. I, I was raised in a family and in a church that believed that Jesus was the one who created the church. This thing called South Suburban Christian Church, South Subchurch, is his idea, not our idea. He was the one who called into existence the local church. The Bible calls the church a family. That's one of the words the Bible uses. It's not the only word. What does it mean when we say the church is a family? Well, it's more than just brothers and sisters who get along. This is where sometimes we misunderstand the church is a family. What it means to say the church is a family is where God is the Father. A parental relationship Where we are beloved children. I can't say this at the second service because my children will be in the second service. They're in Sunday school, uh, South Sub Kids, right now. I do not believe that my oldest son and my second oldest child, our daughter, would be friends. I just don't think they'd be friends. (laughs) They argue a lot. Uh, I called them down last night at supper for arguing so much. And, and a few minutes later, Shauna and I started talking passionately about something. And Anna <laughs> interrupted and said, you all argue, why can't we? <laughs> I said, because I'm the father and I said so. She did not look convinced. You know why my son and my daughter are together? Because I am their father and Shauna is their mother. Because of that parental relationship. My dad always said, You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. You know why the person who is here that you utterly get annoyed with that might be sitting a few rows separate from you is because y'all share the same parent, the same father, the same God. And sometimes God has to sit us down at the table and say, Y'all need to quit arguing. You can go to Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. You'll see that the church is called a temple. Pieces that come together to form a beautiful place where God is encountered. In John 10, the church is called a flock of sheep, cared for by a shepherd. Those of you who were here during Pastor Darrell's tenure and ministry, that carries a whole different meaning for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're called a body where we function well only when we function together. In John 15, we're called branches, where we're nourished by the vine, who is Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19, we're called the bride, the beloved of the groom, who is Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, the church is Jesus' plan to reach the world. We are the embodiment of Jesus himself in this neighborhood. I'm giving you some theology today. We're teaching you something called ecclesiology. That is the study of the church. Ecclesia is the Greek for church. The reason this church is where it is is because Jesus wanted his body in this community so that people could hear the call of the gospel. We are where truth and love is proclaimed. We are where the hurt are healed, not by us, but by him through us, where community is created, purpose is proclaimed, restoration is realized. But here's the danger, and this is why so many people get upset with the church. This is why people get get upset with the idea of church. This is why people say, I don't need to be in church to live my faith. By the way, yeah, you do. We'll do another sermon series on that one. But people will say that, and here's why, point two. Because one of the things that you need to do not to save the world is compare yourself to others. You just go ahead and do that. You know, lots of people often think that resentment is a form of anger. Have you ever heard of that or ever thought about that? When I'm resentful, it is a response of the emotion known as anger. When we're we're resentful, we're bitter, right? When we're resentful, we get angry, right? Well, some researchers at Yale University discovered in their study of resentment that resentment is not a function of anger. It is a function of Envy. When we get resentful at other people's successes, we get angry, don't we? But we're not really angry, we're envious. And even that gets complicated. Let, 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 me, let me help and, and see if, this, if we can communicate this better. When your coworker, you're in the middle of this big project, and your coworker takes Friday off to be with her family, hmm. You get angry, don't you? You get angry at your coworker. But you're really not angry at your coworker. You're not angry that he or she isn't working. If you think about it, you're angry at yourself because you don't feel like you can do the same thing. Or you're not willing to risk or endure the results or consequences of your taking time off. Or you are so desperate for affirmation that you will kill yourself and kill your family. Or you have convinced yourself that the success of your project rests solely on your shoulders. Now listen, before you get mad at me, we pastors are the worst at this. As a matter of fact, there's a term for it called the Messiah Complex. When I was a young pastor in my first church, um, I was getting ready to leave, and I told my dad, I said, Dad, I don't know what this church is going to do without me. (laughs) Go ahead. You can laugh. (laughs) My dad said, Son, when was that church founded? I said, 1832. He said, They did just fine long before you got there. They'll do just fine long after you're gone. But the Messiah complex, it's not limited to just pastors, is it? Because you know folks that suffer from it. And if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us at one time in our life have felt that everything depends on us. It's like you have put your own handcuffs on. And you're angry that you're handcuffed, yet in your fingers you hold the key. You don't understand why someone is receiving support and care from others? That church takes care of everybody else, but they don't take care of me. But they asked for it. You didn't. They were vulnerable. Everyone loves them for their honesty. You even respect their vulnerability. But you and I, we're not willing to be vulnerable, are we? It's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to ask for help. It's hard to go out on a limb and say, "I, I can't do this by myself. It's hard to be the one that says, hey, would you guys like to go out to dinner with my family and I, or would you like to get a cup of coffee together? And too many of us believe the lies that we see on social media. We see the pictures and the posts of other people's lives, and we say to ourselves, why is it that their life is so perfect and mine isn't? Well, it's because they're lying on social media just the way we lie on social media. There's none of us that have a perfect life. It's just not true. This is biblical. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the biggest hindrance to a relationship with God is that we stubbornly continue to believe that we can save ourselves. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. That's important. And too many of us are seeking the kind of peace that the world says is peace. And it's not peace. It's a lie. Peace comes through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus continues, let Not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's the third way not to get anything done. I I didn't give the team this point, but it's one that I want to make sure that you leave here knowing, because once we have realized that we have been trying to fly solo, once we have realized the quagmire we descend into when we compare ourselves with others. We find ourselves fighting the wrong battles. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, I encourage you to commit this to memory. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, too many of us are fighting the wrong battles. So if you want to not save the world, fight the wrong battles. Fight the battle of trying to get a better life or more stuff or a prettier partner in in life and ignore the real battle, the spiritual battle that is around us, the battle that wants to claim not only our present but our Eternity.